Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. Welcome back. Oh. We're back. That wasn't our usual jingle. Murder in the Land of Oz. <laughs> that's like a that's like the that's like when we're old in the nursing home being like Murder in the Land of Remember back in the good old Remember days when we, we used to host a true crime podcast? We'll just be sitting in recliners like holding hands. <laughs> yep. Watching, we haven't told you guys about the um, the dreams that Ellen and I have of like living together in Melbourne, have we? I just I realised I was nowhere near the microphone as I was saying that. Sorry. Yes, Ellen and I want to live together in Melbourne at some point. I think we're just going to like buy a house and then eventually become Grey Gardens. Are you Big Edie or am I Big Edie? I think I'm Big Edie. And I'm Little Edie. I think so too. I think you're Little Edie. Because <laughs> she dances all the time. Yeah. And I, I also think I'm the love more authoritative one and less creative. <laughs> Amazing. Stunning. Well, welcome back to our – how many episodes of WA have we done now? Is this our third? I have no yes. idea. Yes. Zane is nodding. Yes. Third episode. Um, thank you all so much for the really positive feedback on the David and Catherine Burney episode. Very unexpected, but um, I'm taking it. Um, we do have some people that we need to shout out for our Patreon, so – Drum roll, please. We got Tish and Betsy. Woo! What's up? What's up? Hey, guys. Thank you, thank guys. You. Thank you so much for the support, guys. Um, as you all know, we have a Patreon that uh, the money from the Patreon goes to supporting the podcast through resources and other expenses that we need. Um, if you would like to become a Patreon, the link will be in the description. Um, oh, Phoebe's joining us. Hello, Phoebe. I think she can smell my musman curry. Um, yes, and we have to take a photo of Phoebe as a as a special gift to our patreons. So, oh, is that what they is that what they voted for? Yes, this is a request to get a, a picture of the elusive Phoebe, the podcast cat. Well, Ellen can't do that job, so I can do that job tonight. I can't do that job. Um. As well as Patreon, we do have um, merch on Tee Public that you can purchase. Um, it's all super cute. Um, we highly recommend. Um, I've got a stunning photo of Fifi at the podcast desk. Fifi. Meow, meow. So join the Patreon to be able to see that delightful photo of Fifi the podcast cat. Um, merch on Tee Public. Um, is there anything else that we need to say? Just, no. Just a general. How's just everybody a general. going? How's everybody going? Pause for response. That's great. 
Oh, that sucks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> let me let me know when things are looking up for you. I'll be I'll be thinking of you, keeping you in my thoughts. That was to me, not to to you guys. Um, that was to me. <laughs> once again, we're thriving here at the Murder and the Landfall Studio. <laughs> thriving it's, all day, it's all every day, all the time. All smiles. All right, so it's Ellen's turn tonight. And Ellen, um, who are you going to be chatting to us about? I'm going to be chatting to you about um, a really, really, really horrible, horrible murder. Oh, um, that's as different. Usual. Yes, up top, um, got to say, there is some, this is a, a case of a family murderer. So this case does involve the death of children and domestic violence. So if you do not want to listen to that, now's a chance to stop. We respect your decision. Everybody yep. take care of themselves. Um, so this is the story. It was kind. It's known in the media as the Bedford family murders, um, but the the murder the family in question was the Harvey family, and the murder in question was the father Anthony Harvey. So yeah, this is this case made me sad, and I can't wait to make you guys sad with it too. So we'll start off at the beginning. This is this this case was a little hard to. This case is a little hard to cover because everything about it made me depressed and also because there's not a huge amount of information about it it's very fresh um the decision was only made in july of this year about what was going to happen with old mate um but it has got a lot of uh media attention and everything like that because he was anthony harvey is the first person in west australian history to be sentenced to life in prison with the order to never be released wow so up top spoiler alert he will literally spend all of his life in prison he'll never get out there's no chance of parole um and let me tell you it was for a good reason so who is anthony harvey so not a lot is known about his early life um he was born in queensland on the 29th of october 1993 he he lived in bundaberg from age 8 to age 16 and then at age 16 he and his family moved to western australia he started working full-time at age 17 as a cleaner on a mine site, and he, he was really good at his job. He worked his way up the ranks, and he became a supervisor responsible for 40 employees only in the course of about four or five years while working there. So he was a good worker. Um, in 2013, when he was age 20, he met a woman named Mara Quinn when they were both working um, for Sino Steel, which is an iron ore mining company in Cape Preston in the northwest of Western Australia. So Mara was 17 years older than Anthony. They dated for a what? short time. She was 17 years older than Anthony. Wild. Good for you, doll. <laughs> Get yourself that boy toy, but, you know, <laughs> not actually good for you. Not actually good Didn't for you, up. but never mind. Strike that. Anyway, st- strike that from the record. Strike bad. that from the record. Very bad. bad. Very bad. Um. But they dated for a short time. They got engaged in August of 2014 and they had their first child, um, a girl named Charlotte, quite soon after in February of 2015. Mara was a, she was a very smart woman um, and she was good with her money. She had saved all, a, like a lot of the money that she had earned working in the mines. Um, as all Australians would know, it's a pretty good job. You get a bit of cash. Um, she saved it all up and she invested the money in property around Perth. So they managed to, um, you know, they left their mining jobs. They had their little daughter. They left their mining jobs and they moved into a house that Mara had already owned on Cood Street in Bedford in Perth's northern suburbs. They bought a franchise of like Jim's Mowing 
company, mm-hmm. which they both operated together. So I think Mara kind of dealt with more of the businessy side of things, and um, Anthony was the 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 physical. But they both they both owned the franchise, and then. Uh, they got married in November of 2015, and then they had two other children, twins named Beatrix and Alice, in July of 2016. So, in August of 2018, Anthony started planning the murder of his wife and daughters. On August 23rd, <laughs> on August 23rd, Anthony visited a pawn shop and he sold off a number of items, receiving $1,100 in cash. He then went to a knife store and purchased. He bought a smaller knife and he inquired about purchasing other weaponry. And then he went to another store to purchase a Polaroid camera. On August 27th, he went back to the knife shop. Um, He made inquiries about a particular knife that he wanted to buy, but he was told by the shopkeeper that he wouldn't really be able to get that particular knife in October. And that was too late for Anthony, who had plans. On that same day, Mara attended a funeral with her mother Beverly and her sister Taryn. And Taryn said that both Mara and her mother had seemed fine. Nothing was upsetting them. Mara didn't bring up any problems or that anything was going on with Anthony. She just seemed normal, like nothing was going on. Two days later, on August 29th, Anthony returned to the knife shop and he bought a different knife than the one that he originally wanted that was described as being almost the size of a machete. Oh, no. Uh, Anthony's parents came to stay at the house for a visit from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. And on that day, the 2nd of September, Anthony and Mara, their three children, and um, Anthony's parents celebrated Father's Day with a party in their backyard at their house in Bedford. On the thir- the next day, on the 3rd of September, Mara and Anthony visited um, a branch of their bank in order for Mara to sign over authority to Anthony to essentially be able to operate and have permission to make decisions about her bank account. So Anthony had basically told Mara, like, this is a, this would be a good idea for us. This is a good financial decision for us. You know, come over to the bank and sign over, you know, authority essentially for me to operate your bank account. Mara agreed. Um, after that, they had a pretty normal day. Anthony sent off some quotes to clients of his from the lawn mowing business around 6.30 p.m. And at 8 p.m. that night, Mara went to work at her side job, which was doing night fill shelf stocking at Coles. And she was like fucking hustling is she's a ledge she had like three children in like the span of like two years she was helping with the lawn mowing business you know she was doing night fill at coles like she was she was getting she was stuff getting done. that dollar she was getting she was getting that dollar done. she was providing you know um so yep so she went off to work at eight o'clock um anthony put charlotte alice and beatrix to bed and then after doing that, he went into their shed in the backyard and retrieved a 1.2 meter length of metal pipe. He sat inside the house and drank half a bottle of wine. When Mara returned home from work after 11 p.m., Anthony was waiting for her in the front yard. When Mara went to walk inside the house, Anthony hit her on the back of the head with the pipe with extreme force. She fell to the ground, severely injured and bleeding out, but still alive. Anthony then went inside the house and retrieved the knife that he had purchased, the one that was the size of a machete. He came to where Mara was lying in the yard, face down, bleeding profusely, and he stabbed her multiple times in the back until he noticed that she had stopped breathing. He then covered her body and sat with her for a while before picking picking up her body and lying her down on their bed in the bedroom. He then finished the rest of the bottle of wine he had started before moving on to his next task. 
Charlotte, Alice and Beatrix were asleep in their beds. Anthony got the first knife that he had bought, which was the smaller knife, not the machete-sized one. He attacked Beatrix first. So the post-mortem examination would later find that Beatrix was stabbed nine times to her face and chest. A wound to her right eye penetrated her skull and her carotid artery. She had four stab wounds to the chest, one of which penetrated her heart. Alice, her twin sister, was stabbed 13 times to the chest, head, and wrist. Six wounds to her chest penetrated vital organs, including her heart. Then, after the twins were dead, Anthony moved to the room where his oldest child, Charlotte, was sleeping. Charlotte, who was only three and a half years old at the time, was stabbed a total of 38 times. Oh. My. God. (laughs) I know. I I can't. You can't comprehend. You just cannot comprehend it. You just cannot comprehend it. I feel like a little, like I'm going to pass out, but you know. So uh, 22 of those injuries occurred in the front of her chest, penetrating her chest cavity and her heart. Charlotte had so many wounds that it was not possible for the examiner to determine which external wound matched the internal injury. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. So after stabbing his wife and daughters, um, Anthony still had a bit of work to do. He went to the front of the house um, to where he had stabbed Mara and began to attempt to clean up the blood. He knew that Mara's mother Beverly would be coming around in the morning around seven to help look after the kids like she did almost every day um and he didn't want to like warn her before she entered the house as to what had happened the night before yeah so he tried to clean up the blood but there was so much that it wasn't possible for him to clean it all he also took in the um, metal pipe he had used to strike mara in from outside so beverly did come around the next morning she like got out of the car and she was carrying a laundry basket to come into the house and anthony went outside acting as though he was like coming out to help Beverly bring the basket in. When she got inside the house, Anthony struck her on the head with the metal pipe. He struck with such force that it shattered the bones of her skull on the right side and caused hemorrhage. After she fell, Anthony then stabbed her 11 times. One of those wounds was so deep that it penetrated all the way from the chest to her back. So Beverly was uh, 73 years old at this time. So, now that everybody was dead, including his mother-in-law, Anthony went and had a shower. He had a sleep on the couch in the lounge room, and he slept through until the next day. Um, when he eventually woke up, he, like, he went, he went to get a coffee. <laughs> he, I'm like, so drove sorry, out of the what? house and got a coffee. He went to get a coffee. Uh-huh. He went and got a coffee and then spent some time, in quotes, driving around before returning to the house. Um, I don't know how long he was gone, but it seemed to be for a a long period of time. Uh, When he came back to the house, he took, this is so fucked up, he took, he picked the children up out of their beds and put them in the bed with Mara and stretched Mara's arms out around them to make it look like she was cuddling them. Oh my God, what is wrong with this man? Literally, bruh, who knows? Um, So he did that and then he put a blanket over he put one blanket over the kids, another blanket over Mara. And then he went and got all of, like, the kids' favorite toys from their room and, like, clustered them oh, all around sake. the bed with them. And then he went out again and he bought flowers and he wrote notes to Mara and Beverly. And in the note that he wrote to Mara, he said... 
to my beautiful wife, I'm so sorry. I would give anything to undo what I've done. I think I've lost my mind. Take care of those little girls like you always do. I love you so much. No, you Um, don't. And then at some point, no, no, you don't. First and foremost, no, you don't. At some point, um, I think it was after he staged the bodies, he then used the Polaroid camera to take photos of their of their bodies. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can say absolutely not on so far. This whole thing just needs a big nope across it. It's it's just it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's just no, absolutely not. That doesn't make any sense. He bought the Polaroid camera like two weeks before. He bought the Polaroid camera specifically because he knew he was going, like that he wanted to take those photos. Like what the fuck? What the fuck? Anyway, now that like phase one of the plan was essentially complete, phase two needed to start. So he went and he bought some outdoor survival clothing from an army disposal shop and he pawned off some more of his tools for a total of $1,700. Um, Mara's manager at Coles had sent her a text and offered her an extra shift, um, to which Mara obviously didn't reply. Anthony called Mara's manager the next day and apologised for Mara not replying to the text, and he told the manager that Mara had broken two bones in her foot kicking a soccer ball, and that she was undergoing surgery to put pins in the bones, and that she couldn't reply because she was still under anaesthesia. Um, so... The manager was like, okay, it sounds good. Just get me, like, a medical certificate and we, like, won't put Mara on, essentially. And Anthony's like, yeah, no worries, mate. I'll get that to you. No problem. Um, then he went to try and sell his car at a car yard in Osborne Park. And he told the salesperson at the car, car yard that he was selling his car because he was going to go and work up north. Um, so they agreed that the car would be sold for $12,000. Um, but Anthony wanted cash and the car yard guy was like, well, no, we're not going to give you $12,000 in cash. Um, we can do a bank transfer. And Anthony couldn't remember the password that he needed to give for the bank account. The salesperson is like, oh, why don't you go outside and call your wife and ask for the password? And then Anthony like Yikes. went outside, did nothing, I guess, and then came back in and said that he wasn't able to reach his wife and again asked, you know, oh, is there, can we do cash or whatever? Um, he tried to get the salesperson to write him a check for the car. And again, the salesperson suggested that Anthony try his wife again and try and get the password. And Anthony said, he, Anthony responded and said that it was a bit complicated. No shit. That's a bit loaded. <laughs> Understating the matter quite severely. Um, so they ended up sorting Can it all out. Can I just say, we're that- being a bit incredulous about this because this guy is a fucking weirdo. We are not laughing or being light of what he's done. I'm just shocked I just can't and comprehend it. Like my no, human brain. this is brain, incomprehensible. My human brain can't handle the behavior. It's just like, <laughs> that makes no sense. Why would a person do that? Why would a normal, rational, sane person do that? And the answer to that is that he's not a normal, rational, sane person. Um, Absolutely not. Anyway, the salesperson ended up agreeing to do a check and then the salesperson was like, okay, well, you've left your car here. I'll drop you off at home. And Anthony's not... Anthony was like, oh, no, drop me off at um, a shopping centre because I was – Anthony was like, oh, just drop me off at the shopping centre. I'm going to meet my wife and kids there. And the salesperson was like, okay. Uh, That That must have been the weirdest afternoon for that guy. (laughs) That salesperson would have been like, how does this guy not know the password to his own bank account? (laughs) Um, So that evening, 
uh, Anthony used Beverly's mobile phone to ring a person who was selling a car for $3,200 on Gumtree. The next day, which is the 6th of September, he transferred around $29,000 from various bank accounts into the one that Mar had signed over permission for Anthony to use. He then sold off some of Mara's jewellery to a cash converters and got $1,000 for it. He went to a camping goods store and purchased three 20-litre jerry cans. Um, and so this is this is now the 7th, the 6th of September. The murders occurred on the 3rd of se- September. He's been staying in the house with his family's dead bodies this entire time. Like, he's just mm-hmm. been going home and, like, using his dead mother-in-law's phone to call and then, like, going to sleep in the house where the bodies all were. Um, but on the night of the 7th of September, he ended up sleeping in his car at, uh, Hillary's Boat Harbour for whatever reason. The next day he went to the bank withdrawing $29,500 from Myra's bank account and $9,500 from her credit card account. And so he's, he's, you know, he's got all his camping gear. He's got all his outdoor gear. He's got a car. He's got cash. Like he's pretty set up to like get away with it you know what I mean like he's pretty well set up to just flee into the wilderness and started life as a vagabond or whatever but at 11 a.m on the 8th of September Anthony called his dad who lived in Panawanaka which is about 15,000 kilometers north of Perth and said that there was something that he needed something important that he needed to talk to him about so Anthony's dad's like no problem come up and see me we'll chat So the day after that, Anthony drove to Panawanaka and he met his father in a town about an hour away um, in like a rest area, in like a petrol station sort of situation. And, you know, he sat down and after some time, he eventually admitted that he had done something really wrong and he said that he had hurt all of them. So Anthony's dad was like, okay, that's bad news. He took Anthony to the police station straight away and he also called triple zero to tell them to send some officers to the address. Someone to the house, yeah. Yeah, and he he said, you know, they're going to find bodies there. Like, that's what's happened. So the police in Perth did attend the scene and they found the bodies of Mara, the girls, and Beverly Quinn, basically the way Anthony had left them. And they also went to where Anthony had left his car at the rest area before his dad took him to the police station. And in the car, they found $40,000 in cash, the two knives that Anthony had bought, and two journals. So inside the journals... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Inside the journals were the Polaroid photos that Anthony had taken of the bodies after the murders as well as, like, weeks of entries planning out the crimes. So one of the journals began, this book is intended to explain and document my journey as if it was some kind of, like, manifesto or, like, thing explaining... Absolutely not, you loony situation, what had happened to him. All of the entries, you know, I don't want to, like... I don't want to discount the severity of this situation, but everything he wrote was very, like fight clubby like frustrated white man you know life is meaningless kind of things so he 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 wrote that he felt that his life is meaningless and about how he needed to unshackle himself from his existence and end the boring endless circle of his daily life divorce your wife don't kill them 
Holy well, shit. In his mind, in order to do this, he needed to embrace his darkness and his animal instincts and do the unthinkable. He wrote in no. his journal that he, No, you don't. You're wrong, but that's what he thought. Um, he wrote that he was no psycho. I feel, I feel too much. I always have. I will regret what I do. So some of it was, you know, emotional kind of stuff like that. Other parts of the journals were like laying out his options. So he, for what he was going to do. So one of his options was get a divorce. Another one was leave unannounced. Another was um, make family disappear. And the final one was eliminate family. So he noted down what he needed to do in order to get away with the crime, um, including what he was going to do to get money and what he needed to do to survive while he was on the run. Another entry from the 3rd of September stated, Tonight I will kill my wife and bludgeon and smother my daughters. Then the real hunting begins. But first, my loved ones. So, no thanks. As you can probably imagine, <laughs> no thanks. Big no thanks. So, you know, with the, with the journals and with the fact that, you know, he basically did hand himself in to police his his fate was kind of already sealed by this point mm. so he was interviewed by police on the 9th of september when he handed himself in he gave the police a detailed account of the murders he told police that he know he knew what he had done that he had full memory of it but he didn't understand why he did it and he had no reason to do it he said that he had felt anxious and depressed um but there was no there was nothing going on in his life to make him feel that way uh he denied using drugs although he did admit to drinking more wine than he was used to on the night in question. And he said that the writings in his journal were mostly nonsense, which was kind of not true because, like, he'd written out everything that he did, he planned to do and that he did eventually do, so. Um, He he told police that he and Mara had had a good relationship, that she was a supportive wife and a good mother. He also said that he loved and missed his family. So the next day, September 10th, Anthony appeared via video link to Perth Magistrates Court from the Karratha Police Station where he was being held to be charged with five counts of murder. Anthony didn't say anything throughout the, hear- the hearing except to confirm his name and to say, I understand, or yes, after each count was read. Myra's sister Taryn released a statement to the media on this day. She said that there was no way for the family to explain the emptiness and loss that they were feeling. She described her mother, Beverly, as a kind-hearted, caring mother and grandmother who was always there for her family and who loved her daughters and her grandchildren. She said that Charlotte was an energetic, bubbly, confident little girl who loved people and loved socialising. Alice was outgoing, adventurous and cheeky, while Beatrix was at times a little bit more quiet, but gave the biggest hugs. She concluded by saying, This world is a sadder place with the loss of these five beautiful people, but heaven has gained five new angels. So six months later, in April of 2019, Anthony Harvey appeared in court again uh, via video link to plead guilty to the five murders. Part of the reason for the delay was that it took such a it took a long time for the reports of the postmortem examination to be completed, due to the number of victims and the extent of the injuries. So Harvey and his defense chose to wait until these were completed before entering a plea. The plea of guilty was accepted and he was held in remand until a sentencing hearing in June of 2019. And it wasn't until this hearing that the gorier details of the case became known to the public. So, uh, 
what happened was is that they they had the sentencing hearing and um the the judge that presided over the case basically said that there he placed a suppression order on some information to do with the case so he the the judge said that some details of the murder were too confronting to ever be revealed to the public so there's something that anthony did or something that happened with these murders that is somehow worse <laughs> than everything i've already that hasn't said been released that will never be released so i don't want to speculate as to what that could be because i have no idea and i'll never sleep again i'll never sleep again i don't ever want to know because knowing what i do know already is too much but there is something else that happened that made this case even worse so um at this sentencing hearing the western australia director of public prosecutions amanda forrester read out selection from anthony's harvey's journals and argued that for the safety of the community, Harvey should be deprived of liberty for the rest of his days. She stated, I appreciate it's a dreadful thing to contemplate locking up a 25-year-old for the rest of their natural life. Did I mention that he was only 24? He was only 24. He is our age. He's our age. He was born in 1993. Absolutely not. Yeah, so he was 24. Mara was 41 when she was murdered. Oh, king hell. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it's a dreadful thing to contemplate locking up a 25-year-old for the rest of their natural life, but when a person destroys an entire family in the way he has, in a premeditated, violent, callous, and degrading way, then the community interest demands no less. Anthony Harvey's defense, Sam, Sam Van Dogen, said that Anthony should be granted a minimum parole period due to the fact that he had pleaded guilty, the fact that he was only 25, and the fact that a psychiatrist had deemed that he could possibly have high-functioning autism which is something that I will come back to in a minute. He said that while Harvey's crime was almost incomprehensively and indescribably serious, it was not necessary to lock up Harvey for the rest of his life. Taryn, Mara's sister, read a victim impact statement to the court, saying, Nine and a half months ago, everything I knew, believed, and counted on was taken away from me. In a time where I needed either my mum or my sister the most, I had neither. I felt lost. I have fears of walking into dark rooms and Anthony will be there waiting. Every minute of every day, I think about my family and their last moments. So this is the kind of information that the judge had to deal with when coming up with his sentencing. Um, Because the sentencing was so historic, I do want to spend some time kind of going through what the judge said and what the factors that came into the decision making were. Um... So firstly, onto the thing that the defense said about the, him having high-functioning autism. Yep. So a psychiatric evaluation was undertaken by Dr. Woronowska at the request of Harvey's defense. She found that Anthony didn't suffer from any major psychiatric disorder and that alcohol was not a factor in his offending. So the fact that he was drunk on the night in question didn't have an impact on whether or not the murder would have been committed. If that no, makes because sense. it was so premeditated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She also stated that Harvey had no prior history of violence and that he didn't fit the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Harvey had stated that he had experienced periods of anxiety and depression since he was 14 and that he had had a depressive episode in February 2018 due to financial difficulties. He told the doctor that at this time he started to believe that his, that his life and other people's lives were meaningless. He was obsessed with serial killers and would cope with the difficulties of his life by escaping into a fantasy world where he was one of them. His wife noticed that something was wrong with him and took him to a doctor and he was prescribed antidepressants, which did help his mood. 
he stopped taking his medication a week before the murders in September 2018 because he said he felt well. He said he didn't seem to experience any mood changes after he stopped taking the antidepressants, which led the psychiatrist to find that depression was not a factor in the murder. So him stopping his, much like the alcohol, he'd already planned the murders. Him stopping his medication Mm. didn't influence the fact that it was going to happen. The psychiatrist said that growing up, Harvey had the tendency to pursue narrow interests to the exclusion of other important areas of his life. Harvey had a tendency to replace reality with fantasy, but not to the point of becoming psychotic. She said that she said that she found the way he committed the murders and his behavior afterwards to indicate that Harvey had a lack of social understanding and empathy. These factors were consistent with the diagnosis of high-functioning autism as well as narcissistic personality disorder, which is, quote, characterized by grandiosity, lack of remorse, empathy or guilt, and a lack of concern for others. So she didn't actually diagnose him with high-functioning autism or narcissistic personality disorder. She just said that his behavior was consistent with those things. And she said that further assessments would need to be undertaken for a diagnosis to be actually made. Um, She concluded that Anthony Harvey was not depressed or psychotic at the time of the murder and that he was driven by his desire to embark on a new life journey um, as well as inspired by his inability to connect with others and the fact that he was living in a fantasy world, which led him to disregard the needs and emotions of others in order to reach this goal. She stated that his empathy deficits allowed him to engage in extreme violence and that his obsession with existential issues like aging and death, as well as with the narcissistic desire to leave a mark on the world, was a factor in the murders. So all in all, the judge didn't consider didn't consider the diagnosis of high-functioning autism to have great value in the case. The judge basically said, like, well, it's obvious that you have a lack of empathy, but it's not conclusive that it's a result of autism or, you know, that you committed the crime because you lacked empathy. He was like, the fact that you lack empathy allowed you to commit the crime, but it didn't cause you to commit the crime, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, there were some things in the psychi- psychiatric evaluation that were part of the suppression order. So it's possible that were some other elements of the crime that could be explained by some mental health problems, but that information isn't known to the public. So in terms of um, like mitigatory factors, you know, there, there were some mitigatory, mitigatory factors in this case, but, you know, for example, he, Anthony Harvey pleaded guilty and the judge was like, you did plead guilty, good for you. But he also said that he considered the prosecution case to be so overwhelmingly strong that a plea of guilty was inevitable and therefore it didn't have that much value on the case. Mm. Um, he did, the Justice Hall did acknowledge that pleading guilty, in, when he pleaded guilty, he spared the state, the witnesses and the family of the victims the trauma of a trial. He also noted that Harvey cooperated fully with the police, although he did avoid detection for five days after the murder and made plans to escape. The fact that he eventually turned himself in and gave a full confession had merit. Remorse is also usually a mitigating factor, and Justice Hall acknowledged that Harvey showed remorse, both in his statements to police and in the notes that he left with Mara and Beverly's bodies, but that had to be taken into consideration, along with the fact that the psychiatrist said that Harvey was unable unable to feel empathy, so it's tricky to determine how genuine the remorse was. Like, remorse isn't it's not just like, oh, my bad, I'm sorry. Like, you have to actually feel bad for causing pain to another person, not just upset that you've ruined your life. So he 
he the judge couldn't determine whether or not Harvey's general lack of empathy meant that he would be able to feel remorse if that makes sense Mm. um the judge also said that any demonstration of remorse was counteracted by behaviors after the fact like the taking photos of the bodies and continuing to try and escape in terms of harvey's age being a mitigating factor the judge was basically like you're 24 (laughs) you know better like roughly you can spend the rest of your life in prison but also like don't kill your family um in terms of aggravating factors there are a whole lot. So firstly, the fact that the crimes were premeditated was basically the most significant aggravating factor. Um, the judge used Anthony's journals as evidence in this case, calling them not a mere record of dark fantasies. Rather, they included details of what you would do and how you would do it. They included a statement of intent to kill all of your family, apparently written on the morning of the day that the first four offences occurred. These plans were formulated over time. Harvey had also told the psychiatrist that he had decided to commit the murders about one month before they happened. Obviously, he started actually putting the plan into motion more than a week before the murders when he purchased the weapons, um, made Mara sign over the bank account and bought the camera. So the fact that Harvey used multiple weapons and the fact that he inflicted multiple severe wounds on each victim far beyond what would have been necessary to kill them was also an aggravating factor. Um, as were the number of victims and the fact that it wasn't like a typical, it wasn't a mass killing in the sense that, you know, he got in there and shot a Muller with a gun or whatever. Like he came in, killed Mara, waited with the body, moved on to the next, you know, moved on to his children, one after the other, thought about it, spent time, you know, the, the judge was like, you had an opportunity between each crime to change your mind, but you didn't, you you had that whole night you kept going you kept going like when beverly arrived the next day you still didn't change your mind you've still kept doing it um the judge also highlighted the vulnerability of each of the victims um firstly mara was coming home late at night and she had no reason to assume that her husband would attack her beverly was a 73 year old woman and she also had no reason to expect that she would be murdered right after anthony helped her bring in something from the car and i mean three of his victims for his own children to quote the judge the children were very young and asleep in their beds at home this was the place that they should have been safest they should have been able to trust their father to protect them that is the most fundamental duty any parent has you breached that trust and failed in that duty in the most extreme way imaginable and then the final aggravating factor that the judge highlighted was the after the fact behavior like posing the bodies um you know planning to escape and so on to quote the judge again your focus was to continue with the narrative that you had written and to continue with your role in that narrative all of this showed a callous disregard for your victims and is inconsistent with your later claims of remorse so the judge also um talked about the fact that there was like the primary victims of the case and the secondary victims so the primary victims were of course mara charlotte alice beatrix and beverly and the secondary victims were the extended families of the victims, especially Taryn, who was Mara's sister, and Wendy, who was Beverly's sister, both of whom had victim impact statements that were read out at the sentencing hearing. And the judge also noted the police officers who arrived on the scene. He said oh that the Oh god, those poor poor people. Yeah, he said that the first like the first responders were young and like junior officers and that the impact on them would be long lasting. So from there, the judge was like, well, 
you're going to get life in prison at any count. It's not whether or not you're not going to go to prison for the rest of your life. It's whether or not I should set a minimum, you know, a minimum term or should I go with the never to be released shtick. So um, Justice Hall was talking about how, how severe the crime was. And he said that it is usual for judges when referring to the seriousness of a particular offence to describe it in a way that enables it to be measured against other offences of the same type. These offences make this task very difficult. Frankly, I struggle to find words that are adequate to convey the magnitude of your offences. Your actions are so far beyond the bounds of acceptable human conduct that they instill horror and revulsion into even the most hardened of people. So he's essentially like, in terms of severity, this is the worst you can get. Like, there's no way that we can discount that. And he said that, you know, one of the arguments, um, I think, from the defense side was that he could give he could give Anthony like a really, 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 really long minimum term because he was so young. It would still mean that he would spend a long time in prison, which would be, a, you know, a big punishment. But he was like, you know, if I'm going to give you a really, 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 really long minimum term. You may as well, like, you know, if the crime is serious enough that you get the longest possible minimum term, it's probably serious enough for you to never be released. So ultimately he decided, taking into account the circumstances of the case and the aggravating factors, that it was necessary to set the order that Anthony Harvey never be released from prison, stating that no other outcome would satisfy the community's interest in punishment and deterrence. So Anthony Harvey is currently imprisoned at the Maximum Security Hakia Prison in Canningvale, Perth, and he did he has lodged a notice to appeal the sentence in August of 2019 on the grounds that it is unreasonable having regards to the circumstances of the offence and the personal circumstances of the appellant. So that the appeals process has not even really started yet. He just said like, oh, well, I'm going to appeal it. I'm going to appeal it. Don't you wait. So we'll wait and see what happens there possible that it could get overturned just because this is the first time that this is this kind of sentence has been applied in Western Australia so you know it does create a precedent um but like I I personally think that he should be in prison for life nope stay in there forever thank you please stay in there forever thank you please and so this is kind of like a sidebar but it's important to mention like in terms of the the context at the time that this murder was the third family annihilation in four months in Western Australia in 2018. What? Yep. So um, on the day that on the day um, that the police found the bodies, the uh, Western Australian Police Commissioner, who's named Chris Dawson, which is not a great name for a police commissioner in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said it was impossible for him not to take stock that in the last four months, 15 people have lost their lives in three separate family tragedies. So at that point in 2018, 23 people in total had died from domestic violence related incidences and 15 of them had come from like complete domestic family killings. So like that's massive. That is a huge amount of people. So the first of these was in May of 2018 um, when a man named Peter Miles shot his 58-year-old wife, Cinder, their daughter, Katrina, and Katrina's four children, Tay, Ryland, Eyre, and Caden, at his farm in Osmington near Margaret River before then killing himself. So the inquest into that is still ongoing. Um, There's not a lot of information about it because um, 
it relates to uh, the uh, Katrina's ex-husband Aaron, who was the only person in the family who was not killed, basically, um, said that he believes that the motivation for the murder was the problems that were caused in the family court battle between he, him and Katrina over the custody of the children. So that a lot of the information to do with that case um, can't be released because it's a family court matter. Yeah. So whether or not more information will come out from the inquest, not 100% sure, but that case is still ongoing and I think the inquest is is being investigated right now. So hopefully some new information will come out about that in the future. Very, 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 very sad case. We'll never cover it because it made me too sad to read about. And then in July... Because that was like one of the biggest mass... It was the biggest since Port shootings. Arthur. Yeah. yeah, it was huge news, but it's kind of like yeah, it's been like huge news and kind of gone down a little bit because I think no inf- no more information can really come out about it, I guess, until after the inquest is complete. And then in July... And that's ongoing at the that's moment. That's ongoing at the moment, yes. And then in July, um, a 19-year-old man murdered his, his mother, Michelle, his brother, Rua, who is eight years old, and his sister, Bella who is 15, in Ellenbrook in Perth's northeast. I remember this as well. Yeah, yeah. so this one is still ongoing as well um, because the the accused, it needs to be determined whether or not that he is fit to make a plea of guilty or not guilty because there are some um, concerns about his mental health and his capacity to make a plea. So that one is still ongoing as well. So in like such a short span of time, literally four months, three people you know in this pretty small city in Australia killed their entire families for various reasons the various motivations you know um the premier of western Australia said that he would be open to crisis talks with domestic violence organizations after all of this occurred and I think it's important to note that this is a domestic violence issue you know Mm. it's a it's a it's a family issue it's a domestic violence issue it's so horrifically sad and so terrible and I think it's just really reflective of the kind of crisis we are in in the moment in Australia in terms of domestic violence where like one was a one woman a week is murdered by yeah, her it's partner been over fi- over f- I think it's between 50 and 50 52 and 53 women that have been killed so far this year mm. um through um domestic violence in this country and like this just goes to show that it, that it is rampant mm-hmm. and that there's not only men that are killing their wives or their girlfriends or something like that there are people there are there are men that are literally annihilating their entire families mm-hmm. because of this toxic masculinity issue that is overrunning our world because mm-hmm. these men who are doing these things don't know how to properly process exactly and the problems that they are having which are totally normal like mm-hmm. we all str- like everyone to a degree struggles at some point in their life with feelings of depression and anxiety and stuff like that mm-hmm. but it is an issue with some men that they just can't fathom their emotions mm-hmm. that they escalate to this sort exactly. of Degree. And, you know, the fact that this is happening in a country like Australia, which has a pretty good, you know, healthcare system, pretty good mm. criminal justice system, like, you know, there is help out there. 
you know, it's a societal issue as much as anything else, you know. There's a lot of stigma attached Massive. to getting, um, receiving help. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you talk to people that are, you know, working in the um, mental health uh, field. Like um, my father is a mental health nurse and he has been for the entire time that I've been alive. And when he's had struggles, um, you know, he's recognised within himself about stuff that he's had to go and talk to people about. Mm-hmm. It's always been like in my my experience it's always been like any other health issue um you know broken bone or a cold Mm -hmm. or something where you go to the doctor and you get a cast on or Mm -hmm. you get antibiotics like you go and you talk to somebody about the problems that you're having and receive the help that you need because more often than not when it comes to mental health problems it's an imbalance of chemicals in your brain Mm -hmm. and that is why that is why you're feeling like this so you need to go and get help Mm -hmm to just level yourself out exactly which is totally normal and it is totally fine and it's a real it's not just a shame it's you know a travesty that there are still so many people Mm -hmm. that you know like I like I'm in the midst of a really bad mental health thing at the moment and I'm still trying to grapple with the fact that I need help to be able to just get up and to Mm -hmm. function as a person like go to work and not have an anxiety attack or get an email or a text message from somebody and not feel like my entire world is crashing down like Mm -hmm. yeah it is it's it's hard for me to fathom that I need help Mm -hmm. and that I there's something actually just wrong with me that I can't just function Mm -hmm. I think I think as well you know we, we talk a lot about, you know, depression and anxiety and stuff like that. And like, oh, you can just go to the doctor and you can have help and stuff like that. But, you know, if if you're having thoughts kind of like Anthony Harvey was having where, you know, the, the most extreme version of that when you're thinking about hurting yourself or thinking about hurting other people or, you know, experiencing some kind of psychosis or something like that as well, you mm. can get help. Like, you're, you know, I think it can be hard for people you know who are experiencing like abnormal or you know more extreme versions to an extreme sense exactly like that you can still get help you know there's nothing you are not beyond help you're not psychotic no exactly if no you're you're not beyond help if you're having thoughts like that like there's there's steps that you can take in order to protect yourself Mm -hmm. and to protect the people that you care about because more often than not i'd say well, maybe there are some people that aren't remorseful about doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but more often than not, you're probably going to be really sorry that you've done something to yourself or you've done something to others. Exactly. Because it's been a moment of you just haven't felt like that there's anything that you can do mm-hmm. to fix it. Nobody is beyond help, no matter what no. is going on. Nobody's beyond help. And there, you know, even if it takes a while, even if you've got to go to 50 doctors before you find the right one, there is someone who can help you no matter what and yeah it's just it's hard to hear about and it's hard to read about but horrific it's horrific but I think it's important to talk about because it's so important you know pushing things like this under the rug or being like oh my god like he was fucking crazy like what kind of a psycho like you know there are things happening in that man's brain that I'll never be able to understand and I'll probably never be able to sympathize with but you know something was happening in his brain and if he had gotten help for whatever it was, maybe five people would still be alive. So I think it's worth talking about no matter how hard it is because maybe mm. 
it's hearing somebody's going to be like, oh my God, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to be my legacy. I don't want that to happen to my family. And they'll realize that there are things that they can do. Anyway, that was a bummer. That was rough, Ellen. Yeah. Oh my God. That's just, ugh. I felt, I felt sad that entire time. (laughs) Oh God, that poor family. I know it's just horrible. And like, honestly, if you, if you click any of the links in the show notes, to like look at pictures of this beautiful family and like the most beautiful children like mm. <sighs> he's so young too to oh be 20 God. 24 when it happened you know it's just it's you your brain really can't handle it you know like uh, reading about his daughter like stabbed 38 times like Ugh. your brain just can't handle it that's the thing like i find this so it's hard to fathom mm-hmm. It really is because it doesn't seem like there's any that like it just is senseless. It, like, it almost seems just, unreal. Like reading everything, I was like, that can't be real. And then he put their bodies in the bed. Like that's not real. That's like some Stephen King no. shit, man. But it was real. It happened. And hopefully, it never happens uh, again. Yeah, that would be really, really good. Um, that'd be good. Okay, thank you for your work, Ellen. Thank you for your sorry ears, that you've Jess. put your um self through that. Like we do every fortnight. Not that any any of the cases, especially None of them are fun. Western Australia, have been particularly fun. Yeah. Apparently Western Not Australia any. has more serial killers than any other state in Australia. Even more than South Australia, yeah. which I thought was interesting. There's a, it's a big spot. It's a big place. It's a big chunk of the country, a that's for sure. big chunk. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, we shall be back in a fortnight's time with me. We'll be back slightly before then with the Halloween episode. Oh, the Halloween! We're doing peace signs at each other just so you know. Um, yes, for the Halloween, Ellen's annual Halloween episode. It's my Christmas. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've got two. I've no. I think I've got like three Halloween parties over th- three weeks. I have an exam the day after Halloween, so I will be spending the Lord's Day studying instead of doing which what I should be doing, which is wearing the witch costume that I saw in the window of my local Salvation Army. And I was like, that belongs on my body, but I won't buy it because I don't have any plans for Halloween, apart from hitting the books and crying. Hitting them books. I might drink like a red pray wine or something like that. The, and pray they don't hit you back. Oh, they hit me back. Don't you worry. <laughs> Stunning. Well, Halloween episode. Look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, I will be back uh, then after that to talk about the horrific murder of Aaron Padgett, which will be my next case. I've and never heard of that. It is not good. Great. It is It is niche, Kate. It is not good. Um, so, in the meantime, if you would like to get in touch, please send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. We do like it when you guys reach out. We've had a lot of people um, chatting to us on Instagram. Speaking of, I need to do the Instagram um, giveaway. So, we, if you mentioned us in the in your story, I did like a period of like four days of people um, mentioning us in their stories. So, I picked our winner out of a heart and we... The winner was Greta Walzak, um, and she is a wedding photographer on Instagram. Her um, thing is um, at Greta, which is G-R-E-T-A, and then Walzak, W-O-L-Z-A-K. 
bloody stunning. Amazing, um, so Greta, Greta, congratulations. You, congratulations, Greta. Um, Dole, can you message us please on Instagram? Um, let us know which of the Mitlu t-shirts of the stunning quotes of Jim Jones communist monkeys or what a bunch of noodles or botany solves crime or um, sorry, I'm BZ. Any of those that you can pick, um, and we will get shipped that out to you. Um, so yes, exciting. so hit us up on Instagram. Um, make sure that you're sharing. Um, you know, when you're listening to us on Spotify, we love that. Um, get in touch if you have any cases that you'd like to suggest uh, for Northern Territory. We've already had one suggestion come through for the Peter Falconio case. That's a very good request. Good request, taking that on board. Um, And, yeah, I guess hit us up on Facebook as well. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, guys. We'll see you for Halloween news. Keep it spooky. Spookalicious. Goodbye. Bye. Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.